Well, recently, uh, Beth and I were watching our favorite TV show, and uh, the show ended. We actually had it recorded. The show ended, and uh, one of the commercials came on for the lottery drawing. And, uh, you know, the, we're sitting there just after the show, kind of getting ready for bed, and, and uh, the first ball pops out. I don't know if you've, any of you have seen this commercial, but it's when they do the drawings, I guess, on Friday night. The ball pops out, and boom, 17 was the first one. And, you know, another ball pops out, 25, you know. And I just sat there thinking, um, wow, you know, what, what, how odd it must be to actually be following this with, your, with a, presumably your piece of paper in hand, uh, hoping that the next ball that drops out of the chute is, is the number that you have written down. I, I think that's how it's played. You know, and, and sure enough, there's four or five balls that popped out. And, and the last one, the Mega Millions, I think it was, is the yellow ball, you know. And I just thought, hmm, it's very interesting. Um, and, you know, if I'm going to be honest with myself, I would enjoy winning the lottery. <laughs> you know, that would provide a sense of security and peace, uh, you know, to our family, a financial security where we wouldn't have to worry about bills and shoes and and uh, food and housing and, you know, a leaky roof and so on and so forth. You know, this, this lottery. And I thought, it's very interesting, this idea of finding our hope in this. When at the end of our passage today, in verse 25, James is going to, James is going to say, how blessed is the man who is a doer, a doer, rather than just a hearer. How blessed. So this morning, as we head towards verse 25, we're going to start in 22, of course, I want us to think about what does James mean here? How blessed is the man who does these things? So the title of my sermon here is Mirror, Mirror on the Wall, and then uh, the title, the rest of the title that you don't see is Who is the Greatest Law of All? Of course, I'm playing off of the line in the movie, um, Snow White, I guess, um, Mirror, Mirror on the Wall, Who is the Greatest Law of All? Because like uh, Lindsay has already pointed out this morning and Jim has pointed out in the past, we're... There's this idea of the law and doing the law, doing the word, and how does this relate to um, us as Christians who don't have to, in some sense or fashion, we'll come to more of this in a moment, don't have to do the law that is recorded for us in the Pentateuch, that is in the early, early books of the Old Testament. All right, so here's some of the problems that we're going to see in this passage and that we'll address over the next few minutes. Let me just go ahead and read the passage for us so that we can see where we're going. James 1, 20, uh, 22 through 25, uh, 25, where he says, But prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude or deceive themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he immediately has forgotten what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, 
The law of liberty and abides in it. Not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. So, just to draw out a little bit of this problem of the law and the gospel, listen to what Luther, Martin Luther, champion of God's grace and faith in Christ Jesus, listen to what he said about the book of James. He says, though this epistle of St. James was rejected by the ancient, I, ancients, I praise it and consider it a good book because it sets up no doctrines of men but vigorously promulgates the law of God. However, to state my own opinion about it, though without prejudice to anyone, I do not regard it as the writing of an apostle. And my reasons follow. In the first place, it is flatly against St. Paul and all the rest of Scripture in ascribing justification to works. It says that Abraham was justified by his works when he offered his son Isaac. Though in Romans 4, St. Paul teaches to the contrary that Abraham was justified, justified apart from works, by faith alone, before he had offered his son, and proves it by Moses in Genesis 15. He goes on talking about that, how it's proven, and how this is one reason why this epistle can't be written by an apostle. And then he says the second reason. In the second place, its purpose is to teach Christians. But in all of this long teaching, it does not once mention the passion the resurrection, the spirit of Christ. He names Christ several times, but he teaches nothing about him, only speaks of general faith in God. Now it is the office of a true apostle to preach the passion and resurrection of the office of Christ. But this James does nothing more than drive to the law and to works. Did you hear that? But this James does nothing more than drive to the law and to works. Besides, he throws things together so chaotically that it seems to me he must have been some good, pious man who took a few sayings from the disciples of the apostles and thus tossed them on paper. Or it may perhaps have been written by someone on the basis of his preaching. He calls the law, listen carefully, he calls the law a law of liberty, though Paul calls it a law of slavery, of wrath, of death, and of of sin. Well, this has been such a problem over the last three or four hundred years as Luther called James a straw book, a book of straw, because of its emphasis on works, its emphasis on doing things. And here we confront this just head on in this passage. I can't help but wonder, you know, why Jim uh, maybe gave this to me. Uh, But we confront it head on, and I think we'll be surprised the answer and possibly what James might have been thinking. As a matter of fact, Pastor Jim has already taken us several times to the gospel, this idea of being born again, which James himself has brought up over the last few weeks of his teaching. So what of James, and in particular this passage this morning? Well, immediately from the outset, we see a contrast here. And the contrast is this. It's very clear, very easy to see. Are you going to be a doer of the word, or are you going to be a hearer? Here's the contrast, contrast throughout these three verses. So I suppose if we were going to have a couple points in our sermon, it would be one, a doer, and two, a hearer. 
a doer or a hearer. As a matter of fact, I thought also of uh, the possible title for the sermon could be Just Do It, right? that slogan uh, of a particular shoe company. I also thought about another phrase that I've heard often in the Christian life. The Christian life is one big yes and a lot of little uh-huhs where we have to, we do confess, we do commit once to following Christ, but that's not enough. We have to have all of these little uh-huhs where we re-up, as it were. And I would agree with this to a certain point that we need to decide now whether we're going to submit ourselves to the Word of God or not. We would not want to be a person who waits until the moment of passion, waits till the moment of temptation to decide then whether we're going to obey instruction, to obey Scripture, because we will probably fail every time. Now is the time to decide whether we'll submit to the law of God. Now, one thing that we should point out, as Lindsay actually already pointed out, is it says we are to be a doer of the word. I'm working my way through the passage here this morning. Prove yourselves to be doers of the word. I mean, aren't, aren't we glad, or should we not be glad, that God gave us the Bible? That God gave us these instructions that he did not leave us without some idea of what we should do. And although people can rationalize their way out of certain commandments or obedience, it's rather difficult to do. As a matter of fact, I'm sure you've heard about the idea behind rationalize, that you tell yourself rational lies, right? And that's the one who tries to rationalize his way or her way out of clear teaching of Scripture. And we see it all around us in our culture. But God has given us his word. We know clearly what we should do and not do, for the most part, based on it. And we are to be a doer of this word. As a matter of fact, those who are merely hearers, those who are merely hearers of the word, James says, really are just deluding themselves, they're deceiving themselves. Now again, I look around the room here, and I don't see anyone that I would classify as a hearer, merely a hearer of the word. But I think we would all agree that in the Christian church, at least in America, there are, mere, there are many merely hearers of the word out there who come and sit in a pew Sunday morning, perhaps hear a sermon, perhaps uh, go through tradition, and uh, immediately walk out and live different lives than what Scripture clearly teaches. Hearers of the Word rather than doers of the Word, deceiving themselves. Now, I don't know about you if you've, ever, um, if you've ever come to the recognition that you were being deceived by yourself, by sin, But in some way, we're all deceived a bit because we all have sin in our lives that we may or may not even know is there. Listen to the explanation of a pathological liar. 
Encyclopedia says that pathological lying is a behavior of habitual or compulsive lying. Although it's a controversial topic, pathological lying has been defined as falsification entirely disproportionate to any discernible end in view, may be extensive and complicated, may manifest itself over a period of years or even a lifetime. The individual may be aware they're lying or may may believe they are telling the truth, being unaware that they are relating fantasies. So there is a sense where we don't even see our own sin many times. Perhaps we don't see the hypocrisy. Perhaps we don't see little lies that we tell ourselves. Perhaps we think that uh, looking at the picture on our phone is okay as long as it does not hurt anyone else. Perhaps we think of stretching the truth just a little bit about our coworker or friend is okay. Because after all, it's just a little stretch. Deception. And so James goes into this illustration. Is He's like one who looks really at the mirror at his own birth, his own birth face. So he looks at the face of his own lineage, it says. Uh, and he walks away and forgets what he looks like. That's what the one who is merely a hearer of the word. He walks away from the mirror and merely forgets his face. I remember a time uh, that was uh, significant in my Christian life. I had really just uh, surrendered to Christ and decided that I was going to submit myself to uh, his law and was involved with a group of guys. And we would uh, go to uh, football stadiums and uh, listen to great preachers. This was the Promise Keepers movement back in the 90s. And I remember sitting in the stands. It was in between. It was during a break. And uh, I remember listening to one of my friends who was there. He was an older gentleman at the time than I was, and uh, in his 50s. And he was known as a bit of a harsh person, a bit of a brash person, spoke rather uh, abruptly to people, um, offending many but he was in this group, and, and uh, we, we had all become friends. And uh, I can remember talking with him about this particular uh, issue in his life. And, and I didn't necessarily bring it up. We were talking about it together. But he said, you know, hey, that's just the way I am. I'm not ever going to change. That's just the way I am. And I thought at that time, well, no, that's not the way you are. Not if you have been born again to a living hope. That's not necessarily the way you are, and you should be open to change, and not only open to it, but seeking change. So are there things like that in our lives? Where we say, well, that's just the way I am. I'm not ever going to change. I think we'll see this morning that there is hope in changing. So I want to look here. This is that whole contrast. Doer, hearer. Doer, hearer. In verse 23, we've already said, here is the one who looks in a mirror and forgets once he walks away. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Look at verse 25. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, 
The New American Standard says the law of liberty and remains, or remains in it or by it. Not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed. Now, isn't this interesting here? We've got several different things to talk about. First of all, think about it. The one person looks in the mirror, right? He looks in the mirror and forgets, walks away and forgets. There's another person who looks intently. It's, it's a different verb. But he looks intently at the perfect law. This verb is used five times. This idea of looking intently is used five times in the New Testament. The other four times, interestingly enough, are used in the Gospels for when the disciples or Mary who discovered the empty tomb bent down, stooped, and looked intently at the monument or the burial place of Jesus. It's rather interesting, I think, that James uses that particular verb right here. But regardless of that, obviously James is saying there's one who who looks with intent, with purpose, pauses, looks closely at. In other words, the doer of the word looks intently at a particular object. Now, what is the object that this person is looking intently at? James describes it as the perfect law of liberty or freedom, we would say. Now, doesn't this seem to contradict? Doesn't this seem to contradict itself? Ever thought about this? A law of freedom? Right? A law of liberty? Does this seem odd to anyone else? Seems a little odd to me. You know, we recently put up this, you know, coffee shop, and we went through, you know, stacks of regulations, regulations about how many people can be in the back, and if there's more than a certain number of people, we have to have, you know, more than a certain number of bathrooms, and if we do more than a certain number of cups, we have to have more floor sinks, and if we do cups, we have to have a larger, you know, a larger hot water heater, and the list just goes on and on and on. Regulations, laws, which felt like anything except freedom or liberty. But James here says the law of liberty. What does he mean by this? Notice that he also says it's a perfect or a complete law. It's very interesting. This is not just any law. It's a perfect law, perfection. He uses the same word, actually, in 117 when he says every, uh, good, gi- uh, every good giving and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. So when he says perfect or complete, he means perfect or complete. Hardly an assessment of the legal codes that we see in the Pentateuch by anyone's estimation. Israel could not obey. The law was not perfect or complete in that sense. It's not a perfect or complete law code. It's not meant to be. So he can hardly be talking about the legal codes that we see in these early books of the Bible. Moreover, he uses this idea of a law of freedom in 
James 2.12. He tells his audience there to speak and do, and in so doing, give judgment through this same kind of law of freedom. It's the same contrast there in, in James 2. So what does James mean? What does James mean about this law of liberty? Through which one, through whom one, or through which one can become a doer and even remain in this law? Well, it's typical for people to uh, preach on the Old Testament and use the New Testament to help understand the Old Testament. So I'm going to do something different today. I'm going to preach the New Testament. I'm going to use the Old Testament to help explain the New Testament. So have your Bibles ready, because now we're going to flip back to Deuteronomy 30. And we're going to use the Old Testament here to explain what James is talking about. Now, just a little bit of background here. Of course, the first five books are, is this really one book of Moses. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's really one book of Moses, the, prof, uh, the uh, apostles say, and there's a reason why they do that. So notice the first 50 chapters, right, are Genesis. There's no, there's no law in there, no legal codes in there, right? It's just uh, Abraham had faith, and there's lots of good stuff in there uh, regarding the coming son of Judah and so on and so forth, but there's no legal code. Then we get to the first 18 chapters of Exodus. First 18 chapters of Exodus, and there's no legal code in there either, no laws, Right? Moses didn't give any laws there yet. It's really all about coming out, of the exodus, coming out of Egypt in the Exodus and so on and so forth. And then from Exodus 19, basically to the end of Numbers, there's a few narratives in between there, but, but the next three books are laws. Laws. Laws which, for the most part, we don't pay any attention to. And I think we shouldn't, right? But there's a lot of laws there. What in the world is being taught there? As a matter of fact, Israel could not obey those laws. Now, this is a much longer discussion than we have time for here this morning. Really, when we get into Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 1 says Moses is now teaching what the law means. And then then he goes, after a few narratives, he goes back into the law again. In, In Deuteronomy 12, chapters 12 through 26. So we've got all of these laws in the Old Testament. And again, Israel could not keep them. As a matter of fact, Moses says at the end of Deuteronomy, he says, look, while I have been with you today, while I've been with you, you've done nothing but disobey. As a matter of fact, I had no more gone up to the mountain to get the law of God, which number one is you're not supposed to make other gods. You're down at the bottom of the mountain making other gods. While I've been with you today, you've, been, you've done nothing but rebel. How much worse when I leave, when I'm gone, when I'm dead? There's no hope for you to obey. Joshua goes so far as to say this at the end of Joshua. You are, I'm quoting, you, is Joshua 24, you are unable to obey. God will not forgive your sin. Right? They couldn't obey the, the, these laws. So what's the point? Well, we begin to get to the point in Deuteronomy 30. Because here is where Moses would find his hope. Now listen carefully here in Deuteronomy 30. I'm going to have to skip quite a bit, but 
30, verse 1. So it will be when all these things have come upon you, both the blessings and the curse, which I have set before you. You call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you. You return to the Lord your God with all your, uh, you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I've commanded you today, you and your sons. Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity. He will have mercy on you. He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Go down to verse 6. The Lord will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul in order that you may live. What is Moses talking about? This idea of the circumcision of the heart. Now, we've already talked about this a little bit. But he goes on here, Moses goes on here in verse 11. He says this, This commandment I am giving you today is not too wonderful or difficult for you. It's not too far away. This word difficult is a word that describes the plagues in Exodus. It's a miraculous thing that only God could do. It's not this, this thing that I'm commanding you today, Moses says, is not this crazy, wonderful, awesome, difficult thing that God did for you in the plagues. This covenant that Moses calls, says right here, is not like that. Verse 12, this covenant it is not in heaven as though one must say, who will go up to heaven and get it for us and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. Now, who had to go up to heaven to get the law? Moses had to go up to the top of, remember? Moses went up to the top of the mountains, to the top of the mountain. He went up to the top of the mountain, got the law from God, and brought it back down to the people. And when he was on top of the mountain, how is it described? It's described he was what? He was in the heavens at the top of the mountain. That's how it describes him in Exodus 20. He went up to the top of the mountain. He got the legal code. He brought it back down so the people would have to hear it and do what? Obey it. But Moses is saying, this, this, this is not like that. This commandment here, this covenant that I'm cutting with you today, it's not like that. It's different than that. Moreover, he says in verse 13, it's not across the sea as though one must say, who will cross over to the other side of the sea? And, and listen to this, get it for us. Proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. Notice the focus here is on obedience. But whatever this new covenant, Moses calls it a covenant besides a covenant in Deuteronomy 29.1, whatever this is, it's not like the covenant at Sinai where they got all this law, these many chapters of law that are in the Pentateuch. Listen to what he says in verse 14. He says, For the thing that I'm commanding you today will be very near you. It will be in your mouth and in your mind. And listen, so that you can do it. That's verse 14. Now, what is this thing that's in their mouth? What is this thing? What does Paul say in Romans 10? Romans, uh, Paul in Romans 10 quotes... This right here, uh, chapter 30, verse 14 of Deuteronomy, he says, this is the word of faith that we are proclaiming. Very odd. But notice, back here in chapter 30, Moses is contrasting the law, the legal codes that they got up on Sinai, with someday this law, right, that was going to be in them, 
and that would actually give them the power to obey. And Moses actually in 29.1 calls this the covenant besides the covenant. Very odd. Well, let's flip over uh, a bunch of books to Jeremiah. To Jeremiah 31. And guess what we're going to encounter? We're going to encounter a very similar thing. Jeremiah 31. And I'm just obviously skipping so much uh, material here. But 31, 31. 31, 31. Jeremiah says, Indeed, a time is coming. Notice the future aspect again. It was future from Moses. It was future from Jeremiah. He says, and this is 31, Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Jeremiah says, look, a time is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. It will not be like the old covenant. It's not going to be like the old covenant that I made with their ancestors when I brought them out from Egypt. They violated that covenant even though I was a, my version says, faithful husband. Yours might say, Lord, to them. They violated that covenant anyway, but this isn't even like that. This is not like that covenant. What's this covenant? I'm going to make a new covenant with the whole nation of Israel after I put them back in their land, says the Lord. Listen to this. I will put my law inside of them and write it on their hearts and their minds. I will be their God. They will be my people. People, this is going to, be, this is going to come such from within Verse 34, that was my, my little addition there. This is going to be such from within somebody, verse 34, people are no longer going to need anybody to teach their neighbors and relatives to know me. Because they're all, for all of them, from the least to the most important, will know me. Because I'll forgive their sin and no longer call to mind the wrong that they have done. Very interesting. In a time coming, Jeremiah says, people are going to have the law within them. And they're just going to do it. They're just going to know it kind of naturally when this time comes. It's like, wow, when is that time? Because that's when I want to live, Jeremiah would say. Flip over to Ezekiel 36, last one. Ezekiel 36, you got to see this. Ezekiel 36, I'm going to wait until everybody turns there. Ezekiel 36, verse, we can start at verse 25. Start at verse 25. Ezekiel says this. This is the Lord speaking through Ezekiel. Then I will dump upon you pure water, clean water, and you will be clean from all your impurities. I will purify you from all your idols. Wow, this is some water. This is some water. Would, would that we could just run down to Walmart and get this. Right? I'm going to dump upon you clean water and you'll be clean from all of your impurities and all of your idolatry. And idolatry, right, plagued Israel from the very outset right up through the current period, which is why actually Jerusalem was destroyed. It's why Samaria, the northern kingdom, was carried off. It's why the southern kingdom was destroyed and sacked because they kept worshiping other idols. And Ezekiel has already told them that. And Jeremiah did and Deuteronomy, so on and so forth. But Ezekiel says, at some point in the future, notice the future verb here in verse 25. And he actually gives that a specific time frame later on. 
It's when a particular king comes. He says, I will sprinkle you with clean water. You will be clean from all your impurities. I'll purify you from all your idols. Verse 26, listen to this. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your body. I'll give you a heart of flesh. Now listen, here here it is right here. I will put my spirit within you. I will make you walk in my statutes and you'll be careful to observe my ordinances. Jason was talking about this idea of, of, of being lost. And at some point, all of us saw, finally, we woke up and figured out we're lost. We, we actually need someone else to guide us. And it's God. It's Jesus. It's his spirit. And here, God is saying, someday... I'm going to put my spirit within you. And the point here is you will obey my statutes. This is the capital L-A-W. In you. When God baptizes you into Christ Jesus, he dumps, as it were, Joel would say, he pours out his spirit on you. And you come to know the Lord and be his child. And you have this capital L-A-W, if you will, inside of you, compelling you to obedience. And the first act of obedience is opening your eyes saying, Wow, I have sinned before a holy God. You fall on your face in repentance, begging for forgiveness the rest of your life you're trying to live this out in obedience to the spirit of god who in some way lives in you you become a doer of the word and not merely a hearer who is deceived you will obey i will make you walk in my statutes I will be your God. You will be my people. You will remain in the land. I will save you. I will bless you. Listen to this. I will multiply the fruit of the tree, the produce of the field, that you may uh, not receive again famine. You will be blessed. You see how this is better than the lottery? You see how the lottery, I think if uh, nobody won it Friday night, it was up to 120 or 20-some million yesterday. But do you see how getting the living God himself makes the lottery all 150 million seem paltry? Because you get the living God himself, and you get him for all eternity. He compels obedience And that obedience brings blessing. Not because we find this new favor with God. No, that's not the gospel. We found favor with God because of Jesus Christ. But we get God himself, starting now or whenever it is that we repent, for all 
eternity. Now, unfortunately, unfortunately, we are still wrestling with creation. You remember creation groans, right? Romans 8. This is still creation, right? This stuff with flesh, you know, this brain. Still creation, there's still some groaning. It's corrupt. We're not there quite yet. We still have to wrestle. And we don't obey perfectly. But the Spirit of Christ within us compels us on, and God has committed Himself to us to be jealous for our devotion and to not leave us as orphans. Blessed is the one who hears the word and does it. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have been so good to us. Lord, first of all, that we get to rest and relax in the Lord Jesus Christ. To know, Father, that it's not because we come to church, it's not because we have quiet times, it's not because we obey perfectly, it's not because we come from a good family, it's not because we come from a Christian family, it's not because we're a member of church. None of these reasons are sufficient, Lord, for you to find pleasure in us. Instead, Father, we can rest in someone outside of us, our Lord Jesus Christ, who perfectly obeyed you and laid down his life for us, it is finished, was raised again, showcasing your power over all creation and death. It's in him we have this acceptance before you. And here, just for a moment, Father, we just rest in knowing that you love us perfectly as a father his own son or daughter. And Lord, we would also pray that your spirit would be so powerful within us that we would obey, live out this person that you have made us. Lord, that we would not become entangled in sin, the sin that so easily deceives. Lord, but that we would run the race with endurance, surrounded by a cloud of saints who have gone before us, and that we would put our hope in that eternal city to come. Help us, Father, each individual here today. Have mercy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.